Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. This morning I'm speaking with Professor Tracy Green. Tracy has 22 years of policing experience as a sworn officer in the UK. She served to the rank of Detective Inspector and she has experience in the areas of serious criminal investigation, in particular homicide, drug and police corruption. Since joining Charles Sturt University, Tracy has been a strong advocate of policing as a profession and has developed courses in the areas of investigation, intelligence, terrorism and police leadership. Tracy, thank you for joining CSU Stories today. Thank you. <laughs> so exciting to have you here. I'm a bit of a true crime tragic, so <laughs> I've been really looking forward to this one. <laughs> um, but I wanted to know a little bit more about your background. So you were a former detective inspector, which is a very impressive title, <laughs> with the United Kingdom's Northumbria Police with more than 20 years experience. So how did you get into policing and what was that like? Oh, wow. Well, it was a long time ago now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of a a little bit of a different environment to what it is now. So, you know, think Helen Mirren, think me. That was was kind of my... That is what I think of when I Yeah, it's kind of, that was me, Um, except I didn't smoke. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, it was, well, what, 30 years ago now? More, more than... Yeah, actually, near 40 years ago. Um, So times were a little bit different, and certainly I joined uh, the police just after the Equal Opportunities Act. So police oh. women who did the whole range of policing were kind of a new phenomenon. For really? That one, yeah. Um, and so it was all a little bit unusual for the guys to have women doing the full range of, of police duties. duties. That, that, yeah, because before that you were kind of constricted to dealing with the women and the kids that were lost and all of that kind of stuff. I had no Suddenly idea. Suddenly we were like um, mainstream and doing all the same things as yes. as the guys, which as was a consequence of oh, <laughs> <laughs> was there resistance? <laughs> yes, I think it would be fair to say that there was a fair bit of resistance. And wow. and you know, so you were breaking new ground all the time. So that kind of made it challenging. But you know, also I mean I I would love to say I joined the police because I had this burning desire to be helpful to the public and all and it, it kind of really wasn't like that. No. Uh, it, I mean, obviously, that is one of the things that is intrinsic inside of me, but I w- certainly wasn't aware of that at the time that I joined the police. I joined the police cadets because A, it meant I could leave home, <laughs> <laughs> B, I would get paid for doing it, and good. C, I was desperately avoiding going anywhere near the steelworks, which is where probably 90% of my school cohort all went to work in our local steelworks. Right. And I was really determined I didn't want to go down that path. So it wasn't a career choice where I sort of thought, oh, yeah, you know, I do see myself as a Helen Mirren and here I go. <laughs> it was more like, wow, what can I do that lets me do lots of sport all day and I'm going to get paid for it? And that yes. was what being a police cadet for me was all about. Was and all then good. after two and a half years, they said, well, you, you're now old enough to, at 18 and a half, join the police. So I'm like, oh, well, OK, well, we'll give that a go and see how... <laughs> see how that goes and then 20 years later congratulations you're 18 here's your baton here's your badge (laughs) and we used to have a mini baton you know we only had we only had a little one that would fit in our handbag because we were expected to walk around with a handbag which I think never saw the uniform never saw the light of day mine it got shoved in the bottom of a locker room (laughs) how 
amazing. Mm. The times change so much, even in 20, 30, 40 years, that you just don't think of it ever being like that. No, it was incredible. I, mean, I remember I passed my sergeant's exams and had to go to a sergeant's board, you know, in front yeah. of all my bosses at the time. Mm. And I can remember them saying to me, well, why have you even bothered taking your promotion exams? And I'm like, well, <laughs> at some point I would like to get promoted. But you'll be leaving to have children. You're not, because you used to have to actually leave if you had children. You couldn't, you couldn't go on there was leave. No, you, you had to leave the force. You, you had just to leave the force. Yeah, that, you still had to ask permission to get married and they would profile your potential partner, husband at that time. Well, I suppose they don't want you marrying into some criminal <laughs> syndicate right. that they knew Correct. about that you didn't. That's, yeah. that's not a bad mm. way to weed out bad boyfriends, probably. <laughs> yeah, I probably should have taken a bit more notice of that. <laughs> <laughs> that could have helped you out. It could, yeah. Were there any women with you no, at that time? No, I think, I think my, so my, re, my joining cohort probably had, uh, well, there was a few in the cadets, but then when I got to the training school, there was probably... Mm. 200 in the cohort and one woman per class, you know. <laughs> so you were always single out, so you would have one woman in each class, you know. That's so it was, how did that feel? Oh, I, I mean, I've worked, I guess because I've worked with guys forever, I actually don't really notice it now. I mean, it, it was uncomfortable, I guess, but I think it was such a different time. You almost, I mean, yeah, you were constantly challenged, constantly mm. teased, constantly... Mm. But, you know, you either get on with it and mm. don't take it to heart or you leave. Yeah. You know, and there was a very touching moment, really, when I um, I finished my probation and one of the guys that used to work in our um, control room, he was, so he wasn't a policeman, suddenly, he was a really nice guy, but he suddenly came into work one day and he gave me this beautiful pen. Mm. And I said, what the, what's this all about? You know, I was a bit, <laughs> what's going on? I was a little bit nervous for a moment. And uh, he said, no, no, I've given you this because you haven't changed. And I, I remember that now. I mean, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And I've still got the pen because it really meant a lot to me. And it sort of made me think, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't try to fit a mould no. of people that are already there. You should just be, be yourself. yourself. Yeah. And you had the fortitude and resilience to be yourself yeah. in what he would have recognised were unusual circumstances. Yeah, I guess. Which is quite lovely. <laughs> yeah. So that is meaningful yeah, looking back was. on that. It was, yeah. And I mean, it, it sort of went, you know, right. I was the first woman to ever be in the detective's office. So that was of that interesting. Of, of, yeah, of the whole um, whole force at the time. Wow. And um, that was <laughs> interesting. Yes, I <laughs> They didn't speak to me for the first three months. So, and in the end, totally, I just got really sick of it. So I went and arrested somebody on my own one morning and I didn't realise that this guy had a bit of a reputation. And I um, stood in the stood in the cell block with this guy. And he said, All right, boys, other, I got him. No, well, no, I didn't even know. I just <laughs> locked him up. Thought I was sick of waiting for you lot. And um, one of them came in and said, "What are you doing?" You know, and I said, "Well, I've just arrested this guy. I've got a crime that he's done, and I've arrested him." Mm. And I don't know. It sort of flipped flipped the switch that you know, oh, maybe she's not so useless after she's all. She's capable. And yeah. after that, there was no there no, was no problems. Trouble. Yeah, and about. Ten years later, I went back as their boss, <laughs> which was kind of nice. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, but that, they were but probably happy to see you. By then, then it was yeah. all, yeah, you were kind of, yeah, accepted. But, you, you know, you should never have to do that kind of thing. Um, but it was just the way it was at the time. Did you ever think when you started in the police force just trying to avoid the steelworks that you would rise up? Oh, never. That high? No, and I, I mean, even now, I quite 
wonder and ponder about how I ever ended up even as an inspector, let alone being here in Australia, yeah. doing my current job. And I sort of think, how on earth did that happen? And, you know, I was always very fond of the Seekers, so there probably was a, <laughs> <laughs> probably was a link there somewhere. But, um, yeah, I mean, my, I'd love to say I have planned my career step, you know, very carefully. Not, not a bit. Not, not a bit. All. It's all just kind of fallen into place. And, you I know, think I think... that's the best way to do it sometimes. Mm. You can overplan. I think... Yeah, and I was talking to someone about this the other day and I was chatting to somebody about promotion and things. Like that. The best I, advice I can ever give anyone is enjoy doing what you're doing. Do it well. Do it to the best of your ability and other things will come. The opportunities because will come. The opportunities will come. If you're trying to look at... And I saw this a lot in the police. You'd mm. have people who were so ambitious to get to the next rank. Yes. And they just spent all their time focused on that instead of actually just doing their job and, and doing it well yeah and, and, and inca- invariably got very frustrated and disillusioned and you mm. know n- not in a happy place so you've got to live in the moment Tracy. you've got to live in the moment <laughs> indeed indeed in all things yes well tell me about so what in in the uk a detective inspector so obviously mm. quite high ranking what what does that mean what is a detective inspector um well, my last job before I came here, well, I was a detective inspector in charge of Sunderland City Centre, which at the time was not in a great state, I have to say. It was sort of post the miners' strike. All the docks had shut down. Many of the mines had closed down. So we were running about 30% unemployment, third generation unemployed, Oof. 10 square miles of a pretty um, difficult place. Yes. But it was a great place to work. You okay. know, We had an awful lot of crime uh, we were the car, car crime capital of, of Europe at the time car crime so the people car, stealing yeah, cars and yeah. hot wiring yeah that's right <laughs> you didn't leave your car anywhere because it was going to go <laughs> um, and it was yeah so it was, I shouldn't laugh. and we had in multiple homicides I think one year we had 11 homicides just in our one uh, 10 square miles so you know were was, they crime related or were they were they domestic affecting, yeah. they were domestic no no I'm saying yeah. so that, normally they're sort of Stranger ones or domestic ones, oh. probably about half and half. So half and half. you know, or persons known to the yes, or to the victim, known. or total you know stranger kind of murders, which are always incredibly difficult to. Diff- they're the, they're the, the harder ones because it usually is um, wrong place, wrong time type situation for the for the victim. So trying to join the dots on those ones are usually a bit more taxing than trying to do the. You know, the domestic type ones. Well, yeah. that's right. I suppose if they're known to the person, it's building a case. But if you, if it's a stranger uh, crime, there's where do you even begin? It's such a mm. difficult process. Yeah, and, and I think you know some of the harder uh, being a being a woman in that space is sometimes really useful because you do tend to think about things a little bit differently. Yes. You know, so sometimes you can come left field and everybody go, oh, <laughs> yes, didn't consider yeah, that, that. That's yeah. right. So it was, it was, it was good to have a bit of a mixed team. But yeah, we had, um, we had some really interesting ones and uh, I'll have to put you on to a couple so you can read up on them being, a, being the tragic that you are. I'm a terrible true crime <laughs> tragic. It's a question that I have because it's terrible for the victim and the victim's families. And I wonder how people consider this, this sort of podcasting of true crime for entertainment. I mean, it's partly informative because you're so interested in what happened, but then Mm. I think I wonder how families do feel about that. Absolutely, and getting it all dredged back up again. I mean, you know, some of the hardest things I've ever had to do is go and tell a family that their daughter or son, um, particularly children, Mm. when their parents are still alive, Mm. it's a really 
it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a triple tragedy, if you like. You know, the, the natural way of life is that your parents die before you and that's, you know, it's as tragic as that always is. Mm-hmm. But having to go and explain to someone that their child is never coming home mm-hmm. because some total stranger has taken them away is, you know, probably some of the hardest things that you ever have to do. That's right. There's no way to soften that or, no. or really explain the reason for it because there is no reason. It's just no, and a the only, turn of the only way you kind of get through that is by thinking that you're doing it in the way that is the best that you can possibly make of that terrible circumstance and then being there for them, mm-hmm. you know, for the duration. I still get Christmas cards from families that I dealt with like 30 years ago. I was going to say, yeah. so that relationship, particularly when if you're working on a case or mm. a homicide case trying to find the perpetrator mm. over that time and you're working quite closely and in touch with the families, could be over years, I suppose. Mm. It is there, because invariably trials and things go on for, even if you... Um, arrest someone and, and charge them quite quickly. Mm. You know, you're still talking a lengthy period of time, and it's really important that you keep that relationship going with the family. Mm. If that's your role, obviously not yeah. everybody does, but if it's your role to do that at the mm-hmm. time, then you do get that really strong bond with them. And you know, it's it's a difficult one because their whole world's falling apart, and the last mm. thing they want to be doing is answering your questions or and invariably there's always difficult questions for them to answer. Yes, yes. And especially, you know, if the the child's not been quite living the life that they think that (laughs) that they've been living and they're they're having to hear stuff that they really don't want to hear and trials and things are really difficult for them because it's all out there, you know, the autopsy, the injuries, the whatever it is, the cause of death. And I, I do think that with the true crime stuff that it's... I think it must be incredibly upsetting for the families. And I'm sure that, you know, they they are doing it for entertainment. Therefore, a lot of the... I won't say they distort the truth, but they certainly glamorise certain things. Mm. I've actually listened to a couple that I did have a level of involvement or knowledge around, and I think, oh, come on, you know, that's mm. really... Are you going to tell me which ones those are? No, no I, I didn't tell you, so you, no. Can, no. you can tell me later. <laughs> Spill the tea, Tracy. Yeah, no, tea. I'll tell you offline, yeah. <laughs> um, But were there any cases where that were never solved that you were working on that you sort of think, ah, oh, I just... Do you think it could have been solved or they just would never have been solved? Or were there lots of cases that were just never solved and it was par for the course? I yeah, mean, oh what's no. that sort of balance? No, I mean, our clear-up rate was pretty good. We had very few that were never solved and they drive you crazy. You know, they're mm. the ones that keep you awake at night because you think, did I miss something? What happened? There's a few that, you know, still raise their heads. And I did a, a session across in... Western Australia, the, well, probably about a few months ago now, uh, about a case that was very controversial in the UK at the time. Mm. And it was a young girl who got murdered. There's an awful lot of trouble about mm. it. But um, anyway, long story short was that a guy was arrested for it and interviewed for over 80 hours, which is, this is why I was talking about it, because my expertise was in investigative interviewing oh, okay. one of them so that's and that's mm. certainly what I've studied since yep. coming to the uni but um so it was kind of a watershed case in the UK because it set a whole new standard around what was deemed to be a, a good interview what was going to be inadmissible because of the fact that they kept repeating the same questions oh. and it wasn't one of these where you know you see in you see in some of the old movies where they're browbeating people or actually beating people or you know good it cop, wasn't yeah no it wasn't any of that it was um just overly repetitive putting the same things back to the person over and over again just trying to wear them down and it was all compounded by the fact that at the time 
the solicitor representing the accused um, kept going back out to the cops who she was over familiar with and saying he's going to cough he's going to cough go back in there and have another go so when his solicitor his solicitor meant to be advocating yeah, for him that's okay. right that so yeah so this all came out in court of course and the judge deemed that these 40 odd hours and he did admit so he admitted that he'd done it but it was obvious when you read the transcripts that he he was saying things that weren't the case at all he mm. was talking about had you know, intimating that he'd, he'd had sex with her and mm. she hadn't no one had had sex with her and there was all sorts of things wrong with, with his, his confession. confession yeah and because we the review on it that's it all went to court he went on trial there was so much public outcry about it they had to have the trial in leeds instead of in sunderland and it was a really very very high profile case still is it's out there mm. in the media oh it's the heron case and mm. the guy got charged he was acquitted at court he had to be put into police uh, protective custody for a time he was bashed up really badly while he was on remand it was just a, a nightmare um the mother of the child brought a civil case against him and he was found guilty in the civil case of assault on the girl and he disappeared he's just gone off into the ether and then there's some evidence coming up really recently yes. about the fact that it may not have been him. I was going to say, was he so, guilty or in not? My mind, There's always a question. What big question think? mark. Yes. Big question mark because there was things he said in interview that you think, there's no just way, right. you know, absolutely just not right. But it's one of those that haunts me because you, you really don't know. You don't I, know. I don't know whether he did it or not. And, you know, net result is that Nikki Allen is still dead and a life of torture for her family yes um, with no resolution with no resolution yeah and a life of torture of course for heron who may or may, may not. or may not have mm. oh. do mm. you do you get it well it's interesting maybe you don't but do you get a gut feel sometimes when you have that person arrested oh, you think yeah. i know for sure you've done that. you do absolutely you do but you've just got to be really careful because what that can do is give you a real bias, a bias. and you've got to be very careful that you don't put the blinkers on and then start looking to affirm your Bias. Your bias, and that is a really dangerous thing to do. And yes, it's you one can't of the retrofit. And when you look you at where a whole lot of investigations have gone horribly wrong, it's that is the problem. People have made their mind up way too soon, gone on the gut feel, and then stopped looking anywhere else. And you know, sometimes they get convicted to spend years in jail. Sometimes they did it. Mm. Probably more often than not, they did it. Mm. But there are that marginal number of cases whereby you know that mindset has been locked in really early they've gone looking for the affirmative evidence mm-hmm. not looked at the anything that might shed a light anywhere else and of course it's it's a bad ending for everyone so well and, that's know. true and criminal justice is not served you know which is at the end of the day is the core of what you, you're there for mm. so it's it's not not a not a good outcome did you find when you were leading a team and you're all working on these incredibly upsetting cases. I mean, they are, they're just mm. upsetting. Did, how was the support for your team? How did people cope generally? <laughs> Probably by drinking the pub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, all joking apart, I mean, you were very close. And it, I'll always remember one, one Christmas, and this was a young girl who had been killed in a car park, and it happened just before Christmas. And... We had like, I don't know, probably 30 of us all working on it. And I can remember it was Christmas Eve. We'd all been working, you know, flat out, 18 hour shifts, go home, get a shower, come back. And it got to about Christmas Eve. And our boss at the time said, sorry, guys, I'm really sorry. I'm just going to have to cancel all your leave over Christmas. It's critical. 
um, we've got to keep you know going on with this. And there's only one person said, I can't do that. Funnily enough, he wasn't seen around in CID for <laughs> ever no, no, again. Really. I mean, he bold to put your hand up and bold say you're to not put doing your, well, it. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, well, it, but I don't think there was. I don't think it was because people felt scared to say. It was because you you wouldn't even dream about going home and sitting having your Christmas dinner, whilst this case wasn't solved. That's right. You know? And this other family suffering. The family they're, they're not going to be sitting at home having their Christmas dinner. Yeah. And in fact, I remember at the time I think we had a whip around for them, and you know all the money that. We would have probably spent on Christmas Day. Everybody chucked in and gave it to the family. And it was a real, very, very close community. And I, I suppose we supported one another. Mm. It was also still very macho. So you didn't talk about it if you mm. were upset. I think um, I, I actually consider myself quite lucky because I probably left. I left after 22 years to mm. come to Australia mm. on a total wing and a prayer. <laughs> but not because I didn't like my job. It was just a interesting opportunity to go to the land of the seekers Um, (laughs) but it wasn't because I wanted to leave the police I actually Mm. thought I would go back to the police Mm. but in hindsight it probably I probably got out before I got too affected or maybe it was time yeah well I'm I'm sure Mm. there's a tipping point at which Mm. you go you know what I can't do this anymore Uh, so I don't know I would have probably been fine but you don't know but you don't know and look and you're here now and I've seen many people who have been really badly impacted by mm. not dealing with stuff well mm. and it's you just don't I don't think people know what it is that's going to tip them over the edge for something so I just think myself very lucky that I have I've come away from it with really good memories yes. and really good experience and not had to go through a really difficult mental readjustment. No, yeah. that's right. You can look back on it and feel like you made an impact and yeah. a difference. And yeah, and that had, the some, work was had good. some really fun times and some yeah. really difficult times. And yeah, did they solve the case of the girl before yeah. Christmas? Good. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that's something. Mm. Tell me why you came to Australia on a week. It can't just be because of the sea, because they weren't that good. <laughs> no, <laughs> was they it weren't. the beaches? Not at all. Not at all. No, I came on holiday. I came on a holiday and went back. To Australia, obviously driving everybody crazy, raving about Australia. <laughs> I, it, I've got a real affinity, and I can't. There's no rationale to it whatsoever. I've always kind of, the minute I landed here, I thought, well, yeah, this is me, and I don't can't explain that. It's not logic, but that's probably the rest of my life anyway. Mm. It was very, it was just sheer luck. A friend, well, my boss at the time, was talking to someone else who was coming out here. And said, oh, not you as well. I've got this woman <laughs> inspector who works for me. She drives me crazy. <laughs> and two years later, he was working at the police academy in Goulburn. And they rang my boss and said, look, we're looking for staff. And, you know, he said, you had a woman there that might want to come to Australia. So I put my Hand hand up, up and uh, <laughs> got interviewed uh, about six o'clock on a Monday morning mm. when I'd been out doing a murder all weekend (laughs) like that was absolutely gaga I still don't know how the heck they accepted me they must have been really desperate (laughs) because I'm sure I was brain dead at the time and um yes I came out on a three-year secondment and never went back oh fantastic Mm. so you're you came and lived in Goulburn yeah and even Goulburn was better than Sunderland I was just sorry for anybody in Sunderland no I know I know do we reach that part but I was just gonna say it was Goulburn an adjustment but obviously that was okay massive well it was a massive adjustment it was hilarious I can remember on the first day I was there going up the main street and there was a horse tied up outside of Woolworths (laughs) I was like what's so it was a huge adjustment but it was really funny because it was like obviously we work in in the academy so you're still having a lot to do with the police and it was just 
Oh my God, this is just so similar. It was just like talking to your colleagues in the UK, but with an Australian accent. Isn't it was that funny. Bizarre. So the culture yeah. was still similar. Co- very much so. And mm. the differences in, you know, I mean, the distance here makes a massive difference on how you operate. Mm. But in terms of the culture and stuff, it was like, oh, blimey. But the, and the one thing that really struck me, I have to say, was they had these posters on the wall at Goulburn that said, support honest cops. Because it was in the middle of the Royal Commission. And I'm like, I had no idea. It just Really? No idea. Because in my world, it was just, you know, my, my police force had probably three and a half thousand people. And if anyone wasn't doing the right thing, everybody knew about it. And sooner or later, they were fingered out. And yeah, and I did do some investigation stuff into the Met, which was a totally different beast because mm-hmm. it was just so big and 25,000 officers. So diff- different altogether. But... I had no idea what was going on with the Royal Commission I, and I was stunned that there was that kind of a culture of... Of, of cover-up yeah, and corruption and, and yeah, kickback. I, and and that's, I did find that really difficult to get my head around because that was just something that I wasn't... Exposed uh, no, to? No, not across that at all. I mean, I'd seen it in the pockets that we but investigated, but it wasn't the norm. Not like a huge virus infecting no, the whole not, area? certainly not from where I worked. Wow. I mean, as I say, anybody that was going off the rails soon got pulled yes. into line you know so yes. it was yeah that was a bit of a culture shock but um no I felt very at home pretty quickly and were you policing here or teaching no no policing? I was teaching policing teaching. yeah never taught anything before in my life Total. <laughs> <laughs> I had done some study I'd done my master's um just because I decided how hard can it be because mm. obviously I never went to uniform school and all these whiz kids were coming in with you know getting promoted because they had a degree and I'm like hmm, how mm. hard can that be so I went and did a master's while I was working mm-hmm. and um, never told anyone because they'd have thought I was a freak because those days not only were you a woman but you were studying as well. That was a super freak. Why are you so above your station? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, no, the question would have been, yeah. do you want to leave? Oh. Yeah. So, and at the time I didn't want to leave. So, so, tough. so um, no, I just, well, you just didn't you just think got about on with it. it. Yeah. So, I'd done some study but I'd never taught anything other than I was a police negotiator. So, I'd done some training in that but mm. other than that never taught a thing mm. so that was a bit of a challenge as well yes yeah. so the police negotiating tell me a bit about that what's that all about oh it's no oh, that's interesting stuff yeah well tell me what you can <laughs> no tell i'll me. tell you well obviously you're there to try and um prevent people either jumping off tall buildings mm. or hurting other people or have you actually been that negotiator in those situations oh god yeah yes yeah. and so well can you tell me this you may not be able to but can you tell if you're going to be able to get somewhere with no. someone early on or does it can change on it a dime? Cha- oh, it changes on a dime and that's what you've got to be really careful and, of course, you've recorded, so it's you've got to be really careful. Yeah. Um, that's high, That's incredibly high-pressure situation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, suicidal people are difficult because you never, you know, you never get the full profile of what's going on for them until you're actually stood there talking to them mm. and... You don't know whether they're drug infected or mm. alcohol, or, so obviously you try and find out as much as that as you can from them. And mm. yeah, you never, you just never know whether you're going to get get there or not. And all you There's can do no is try. Yeah. To it, um, really? Not, not. Probably. I mean, well, the, the really obvious ones who are just, I won't say just attention seeking mm. because obviously they're still in a really bad place to even be doing that. Mm. But you can usually talk them out of it reasonably quickly and just you know have a give them something to. To hang on to, and then they'll, you know, come and all they really want is someone to listen to them, mm. and they're they're the lower end, they're the easier ones, dare I say. Yeah. Um. But 
people who really have come to the end of a who are really struggling and who have really come to the end of a a long road. Then they yeah they obviously take an awful lot more work. But then you you get the sort of the the more violent situations where you, we, we had a couple of escapees who really had not an awful lot to lose. So mm. when, when you haven't got a lot to deal with, it's I remember this I had this one guy on a roof and he'd been up there for hours and it was tossing down with rain and he was totally off on whatever he'd been mm. taking and every angle that we t- every angle that we were going at was not good you know mm. his dad had turned out not to be his dad oh. his girlfriend had ditched him his best friend had admitted to him that he'd been involved in a murder oh. and so you know we're recording all this and I think oh god you know so it on and on and on and hours and hours anyway I think he was kind of weary because a lot of the yeah. time you just got to wear them down they and just tired. outwear them you know so yes. and he's on this roof totally exposed and we just got just got him talked into coming off this roof and I'd been saying to him time and time again look mate even if you do jump off there really you're not it's not going to end you're just going to hurt yourself and it's not going to end it'll get worse there we go you're just going to you just got an injury then yeah and we just got him right onto the edge of the roof and there's this moron from miles away yells out something like oh, chicken or along those lines with some other thank you member of the yeah. public who was so with that he runs off the roof oh jumps off the roof, lands at my feet, and I'm like, (laughs) kind of not really wanting to look down because I'm thinking, and with that, he's standing up in front of me. (laughs) So so I just grabbed him. And and all you can hear, because I had to give evidence in court about all of this, and all you can hear on the recording, I won't tell you all of what I said on the recording, but it was along the lines of, see, I told you, you wouldn't kill yourself. I told you. There was some other words in there, which was very embarrassing when I was in court. But I was very cold, and I had been there a long time trying to get this guy off the roof as well. I didn't. I didn't think you were going to say he jumped. I was. I I was really wrapped up in that. No, he he ran off the top of the roof and jumped jumped. and landed straight in front of me. Broke both ankles, um, but he was so off his face that he. Yeah, he was just still sad anyway. Off he went off to hospital. And so, how long did you do that sort of negotiation for? Oh, was that a number of years? Or? Yeah, it was. And you can't. You've got to be an inspector before you can be trained to do that. Right. Um, because obviously, you you need to have a, a level of you because you're kind of managing to a certain extent. You're kind of managing the scene as well, mm. or at least you need to be senior enough to be able to negotiate with your firearms teams and all the rest of it. Because it's you know they're relying on you to try and do your bit, but it you're also advising them about what they need to be kind of doing mm. for you as well because obviously they've got to protect you but also try and get listening devices and kind of yes. know, anything they can do to help you as well. So so probably I probably did that for about four or five years, I think. But, but you're just on call, so whenever you get called out, you, you just go. go. And do it. Yeah. It's a lot of moving parts for everyone to work together in situations like oh, that. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. with hindsight yeah. it's... Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, you know... It can't the, be perfect. In- it's always more difficult if they've got people tra- trapped in, you know, hostages for want of a better mm. expression, but yeah. Mm. Because obviously your primary concern is getting them out okay. Well, obviously trying to look after the person as well, but you know, you've got to try and get people who, the extended people involved obviously need to be yeah. a yes. primary concern. Yeah. And those situations would be so incredibly complex because I guess if it's one person who wants to jump off and hurt themselves, that's one thing, but if it's someone who is so far down the road that they've taken hostages and are hurting other people mm. or they're ideologically based which mm. we've seen lately can be a little bit scary as well then mm. it just adds layers of complexity to try and unwrap that 
to get everyone out safely. Sure. I can't sure. even imagine. So tell me a little bit about what you, you've you been doing at CSU and mm. your role here. Mm. And tell yeah. me all about policing at CSU. Oh, policing at CSU is huge. Mm. It's, um, I mean, one of our biggest programs, obviously, is the recruit program that we do with New South Wales Police, which is which is great. We've been in a long partnership with them now for over 15 years, and that kind of, that all came into play when... I first came to Goulburn, so mm. I've been involved in that for a long time, and I was head of school at Goulburn for a while as well. Mm. And, you know, we work really closely with New South Wales Police because we co... We, the whole the whole programme is kind of done in a partnership right from the recruiting piece right through all of their training. Um, we deliver the curriculum, develop and deliver the curriculum together. Right. So it's, it's a really integrated kind of approach, which yes. I think is why it is successful, because when you look at how it's been looked at in other parts of the world... It usually falls over because the nexus between the uni and the police service is not great uh-huh. or they split the training between the two. And we also, I mean, we have the advantage as well of critical mass, which makes it sustainable because mm. it's big police service. Mm. And um, so that's, you know, that's one end of our operations. But then, of course, we do all our postgrad stuff across into the terrorism and the... Um, counter-terrorism, um, should I say, not terrorism. We don't do terrorism, we do counter-terrorism. <laughs> That's right. But right across our um, senior leadership programmes. Mm-hmm. And we do lots of short courses in interviewing and things like that as well, which mm. is what I sort of started off doing. Mm. So yeah. you're training all, everyone for the practical skills of policing, but we're also developing that deeper research around Absolutely. criminality yeah. and, and the issues of the day, I suppose. Well, there's a big push around the, you know, the professionalisation of policing, and mm. that doesn't mean them... You know, only behaving professionally, um, but also about them understanding what works, what doesn't work, what evidence they need to, you know, base their decisions around how they deploy resources and, you know, what gets them the best effect. And it's, it's incredibly scientific these days, obviously, with all the technology and everything else. I and mean, forensics. it's come on massively. In, 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 you yeah. know, we used to follow people around doing surveillance. Now they've just got to look at their iPhone. You know, it's like, <laughs> damn, I've spent all that time sitting in cold cars, you know. Stakeout. I know, yeah, exactly. The end of stakeout. Exactly. But um, it's, yeah, it, it's an incredibly scientific, heavily resource uh, intensive role and you know I think one of the challenges for policing at the minute is mm. what how do they manage that massive amount of information and data that they have you know it's really difficult mm. so some really big challenges but we're doing some interesting research to try and work with them to to make you know make well well resourced well evidenced decisions about the, the way that they go about their work so yes well resourced well evidenced decisions and mm. I suppose as you say with all of that data and information and all of this stuff that comes through how to operate really effectively and share information mm. between departments as well where do you think what would be the future of policing do you think in the next 15 years what would be great for the operations of policing well, I'm a little bit old-fashioned, so I like to, I do actually like to see people, um, police, engaging with their public. I think if they don't, mm. they lose that, you know, they lose their their authority, really. I mean, they're there to serve the public. And, you know, if you look, go back to the, the history and origins of policing, obviously that's what it's all about. It's about serving the public and have the public having confidence and faith in, in the police. So, you know, occasionally when I see big groups of them wandering around, not talking to people, only talking to one another, I get a little bit dismayed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think they've really got to engage in the whole of their communities mm-hmm. in a very authentic kind of way. Yes. And I think that, I think that, I think that pendulum is is going that way. 
whilst being smart and using the best technology and, and everything else as well, you know, I think um, we went to New Zealand recently and I like a lot of the things they're doing and obviously the tragic events mm. of the recent weeks there mm. are terrible. But, you know, they've, because they've got a whole of country approach to policing, uh-huh. they can actually innovate really well. Yes. And I think, you know, they've got some great ideas that we can look at as well. And so. learn from. Mm. Yeah, the Kiwis are doing everything in a more innovative fashion at they, times. They are very good. In, they are yeah. very good. Yeah. yeah. And no snakes in New Zealand. Let's move there. <laughs> oh, but no kangaroos either. So. Oh, no koalas either. Sorry. I'm a sucker for a kangaroo. <laughs> we'll have to stay here and they don't have the seekers either. Tracy, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, it's such an enjoyable conversation and wonderful to learn about the evolution of policing both in the UK and in Australia. Thank you again so much and I hope we can talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au. Music